Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter number 3 this morning. Don't forget what Jim said about needing help after the morning service. Uh, able-bodied men was what he said. I, I don't know about that term, able-bodied. The, the, I, I'm not able-bodied, I'm full-bodied. Somebody say amen to that. I'm full-bodied. And then what is that? They, they got one of them, these new words for handicapped people. They call them differently able. And I like that. I'm not handicapped, but I'm differently able. Somebody say amen there. And uh, so I'm, I, if you're like me and you're differently abled and full-bodied, we'd still use your help this morning. So come over and help us load up the horse trailer. A lot of work to do. Get that done. But many hands make a lot work. So I encourage you to be a part of that. And pray for our camp this week. Uh, I agree with what Jim said. This isn't uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning, or Saturday morning. I'll get it right here in a second. Uh, Saturday morning, that wasn't the end. That may have been the end of prayer meeting, but I hope that wasn't the end of prayer. Be praying for us this week and asking God to help us this week. Every year at camp, there's always spiritual warfare that accompanies the physical difficulty of camp. I've told our people, it seems like every year the devil picking somebody out. And uh, that's just that's just who he's going to ride all week. And there's been years it's been me, been years it's been other people. And uh, we could tell story after story. Uh, but let, let, let's, I'm just going to make this one statement, and we're not going to elaborate. But I'm just going to say there was a year that Brother Kerry lost a flip-flop in human waste. All right? And that's, and if you need more info about that, you come to camp, you'll find out. But every year, every year, there's somebody the devil picks out. He says, I'm just going to ride them until I can break them. And you say, preacher, what can that person do? Well, get, get along with God and say, he ain't going to break me. He ain't going to break me. He might beat me, but he ain't going to break me. Amen. And uh, so be praying for us. Uh, every year the devil tries to do that, tries to stir things up, cause problems. You know why? Because the devil believes in camp. There, there's, and, and our listen, our church, everybody's been supportive of camp, so I'm not making this statement about our church, but there are there's churches and people in the world don't believe in camp, but you better believe the devil believes in camp because he's going to be up on the hill in Big Ridge meeting us there trying to stop what God's doing. And uh, so I encourage you to pray for us. Pray that God would get the victory in each one of our hearts, that souls would be saved, that Christ would get glory, and uh, and that everything would go according to the will of God. That's what we desire from you this week. First Kings chapter number 3. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 16. First Kings chapter number 3, verse number 16. The Bible says, Then came there two women that were harlots unto the king. And the king in this passage is King Solomon. They came unto the king and stood before him. And the one woman said, O my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house. And I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass the third day after that I was delivered that this woman was delivered also. We were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, save we two in the house. And this woman's child died in the night because she overlaid it. She arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while thine handmaid slept, and laid it in her bosom, and laid her dead child in my bosom. When I rose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, it was dead. But when I had considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my son which I did bear. And the other woman said, Nay, but the living is my son, and the dead is thy son. And this said, No, but the dead is thy son, and the living is my son. Thus they spake before the king. Then said the king, The one saith, This is my son that liveth, and thy son is the dead. And the other saith, Nay, but thy son is the dead, and my son is the living. And the king said, Bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two. 
give half to the one and half to the other. Then spake the woman whose the living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son. And she said, O my Lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. But the other said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. Then the king answered and said, Give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. She is the mother thereof. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be in your house. Bless camp this week, Lord. Give us everything we need, Lord. Be more than sufficient for us. For, Lord, I know that is in your character and in your ability. Bless the preaching this morning. Father, I pray that you'd speak to hearts. Take your word and wield it in our hearts and minds effectively. Lord, you know the heart's condition of each and every person here. Lord, I don't. No one else here does. But there's not a single one of us that is not laid bare before your eternal eyes. So I pray that you'd take your word and apply it specifically in our hearts. If there's some that are lost, show them their lost condition and that there's grace and salvation in Calvary. If, it, Lord, for those that are saved, I pray that you would show them, Lord, that great price you gave for them and how it calls us and how it beckons us to a life of the deepest commitment and consecration. For, Lord, how could you give so much and we give so little? Father, if you do this today, we know you'll get glory for we'll give you the praise and you'll get glory through our lives. We ask that all this take place in a way that would please you, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I think this passage that we have read this morning in 1 Kings 3 is one of the most fascinating portions of the entirety of the Word of God. These two women come before King Solomon. We read the dispute that they had, how that the one child died, and this woman seeks to steal the child of the other woman, displace it, and claim it for her own. These women come before the king. They each make their case before him. And Solomon, though he was the wisest man that had ever lived, he did not have the knowledge that God has. He did not know for sure what had happened. And so he takes a sword and lays it between them and says the only way to resolve this issue is to divide this child. Now there was wisdom in this decision. Solomon had no intention of killing that child that day. But he knew that the danger that would place the child in uh, would, I'm going to use the term, smoke out who the real mother was. It would prove and bear out who actually loved this child and who instead actually just loved themselves and wanted something to belong unto them. In this, the mother of the child, seeing the danger her child is in, cries out. I love what she says. Oh, my Lord, give her the living child. And in no wise say, she says, I'd rather that baby live, even if it's got to live in her home, than for her uh, to allow you to kill this child. Solomon, seeing the plain truth right before his eyes, says, this one that was willing to give up the child to save its life, this must be the true mother. Give her the child. When I read this story... I think we could characterize it in a few ways. Certainly we could say this morning that this is a story that is about two sinners. For the Bible tells us in verse 16 that there came two women that were harlots unto the king. I remember hearing Preacher McBride talking, preaching on this passage years ago. He said, you come to the end of the passage, you don't even think about that one woman as a harlot because of the love that she had for a child. Isn't it good to know that the love of God and the grace of God can overcome our beginnings and change our testimony? Uh, we don't think of her as a harlot. We've got to go back and read it in Scripture and verify it. We don't think about her as a harlot, but rather as a mother because of the love that she had for her child. This is a story about two sinners. Let me say number two, this is a story about two sons. 
And I would maybe frame it this way. These children are what has been produced by the life of these two women. They are their everything, it would seem. Uh, They are their very heart manifest, beating and smiling right before Him. If you're a mother, uh, you know the great love that you bear towards a child, how that there's something divine and natural and instantaneous about that love. But let me say beyond that, all of our lives are producing something. I mean, spiritually speaking, all of our lives are producing something. We're either producing something that gives glory to God or we're using something, uh, we're producing something that brings shame unto Him. I'd ask you this question. What kind of children is your life bearing spiritually speaking? We could certainly study through this passage and look at it through this prism. Then I would say this this morning. Not only is this a story about two sinners and it is a story about sons, but I would say this really, if we look at it the right way, is a story about salvation. There are several statements that are made in this passage, and I don't know if the Lord will want me to mention all of them. If He brings them to my mind, I will as we move through it. But I think when we read this passage, we find in it a picture of the salvation that God has made available through the person of Jesus Christ. I made mention of this in Sunday school this morning. Old Dr. Harold Sattler used to say that you ought to look for Jesus on every page of the Bible. You'll find Him there. And then he said, if you, if you read a page and he ain't there, turn the page and you'll find him twice. Amen. In other words, all through the Old Testament, we find these pictures of Calvary, these pictures of Christ, these pictures of the plan of God, His plan of redemption for humanity. You know, Jesus Himself said to search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of Me. The Old Testament prophet said prophetically about Jesus, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of Me to do Thy will. He ain't just found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's found all the way through the Bible. When I read this passage, I'm struck by a picture of what Jesus Christ did for us on Calvary. Let me read a passage to you out of the book of Romans that may frame this a little better for us this morning. In Romans chapter number 8, you know, again, this is a story. These two ladies come and they appeal to the law to solve their problem. But the law is limited in what it can do. Solomon does not have perfect knowledge. He cannot dispense judgment flawlessly but he is a representative of God's law on this earth and he does only what he knows to do. But can I say to you this morning, if only the law spoke that day, that child would have been dead. If only the law had spoken, what was the king's law? Divide the child. What was it that saved the child? It was a mother's love when she said, no, spare the child. If the law had been the only thing that had spoken that day, that child would have died. But something else spoke that saved that child's life. Listen to what the book of Romans says in Romans chapter 8 verse 2. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now remember, the law said kill the child. But there was another law that spoke out. Another force. And listen to what it says in in verse 3. For what the law could not do, what the law could not do, in that it was weak, Through the flesh. Now the law don't have flesh, but you and I have flesh. And our flesh, the law is good. It shows a man where he's wrong, but it doesn't make a man live right. The law was weak to change the destiny of a man because of man's flesh. You can give all the rules you want. This is something I wish our politicians would recognize. Uh, You you can't legislate righteousness. Uh, You can. Funny thing about criminals, they ain't too interested in the law. 
I mean, listen, you can put all the laws. I mean, i got a sermon to preach. Why am I talking about this? That You can put all the laws you want on the books, but hey, criminals ain't going to follow them. They're not going to follow them. Listen, they don't fear the precept of the law. They fear the punishment of the law. Uh, they don't fear the precept. You can put all the laws on the books, but that ain't going to stop law-breaking people. The law is weak through the flesh. Listen to what God did. God, I'm going to read the whole thing here, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. When I read what Romans 8 says, when I read the story before us today, I want to preach to you on this thought. Love did what the law could not do. Love did what the law could not do. There's basically three characters in this story. There is the woman who stole the child, whose child died and she stole the child. There is the true mother of the living child who speaks up on its behalf. And then there is the law dispensed by the king. What do these three individuals represent for us today? First, I want you to notice with me the vileness of the lady. And when I say the lady, I mean the one whose child died and she lies. She steals another child. Now listen, I have all the sympathy in the world that that woman's child died, but it does not give her a right to steal then a child that belongs to another woman. Her behavior was vicious. Her behavior was vile. What does she represent to us? Can I say to you this morning, probably this woman, if you had spoken to her and she had spoken honestly, she would have probably said this, I was merely grieving and I was weak and I was hurting. And in that moment, I did what felt right. Can I say, when I see this woman and her behavior, the vileness of this lady, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the flesh. Man's natural condition, man's natural behavior, mankind just doing what feels right, doing what seems right, doing what looks right. Hey, listen, we live in a world today that is governed over by the flesh. I think sometimes we miss it. I was talking to somebody on Friday about this. Uh, you know, we look at, at the Pharisees in the New Testament. And we, we abhor and loathe their self-righteousness. Uh, but can I remind you that the Jew was given a law in the Old Testament. It's the law of commandment. But you know Romans chapter number 1 and 2 teaches us that us Gentiles, I'm a Gentile this morning. I don't know if you're a Gentile. I'm a Gentile this morning. Us Gentiles, we likewise were given a law. But it wasn't the law of commandment. We were given the law of conscience. You know there's a lot of people walking around in the world today who are Pharisees in the law of conscience. You know what the old what the Pharisees did uh, in, in both in the Old Testament and the New. Here's what they did: they warped and twisted the law of God in such a way that they were always keepers of the law. Well, they weren't really keepers of the law. They had just so delegitimized and and and, and uh, depowered the the word of the law that it just had no meaning anymore. And they were able to say, see what a great keeper of the law. They weren't a keeper of the law. They had lied and convinced themselves that. You know that us Gentiles do that too? Uh, people say things like this, well, I'm a pretty good person. By whose standard? Uh, people say, well, you know, I'm, I'm alright. I mean, I, I try to be a good person. I try to be alright. You know what we're doing? We're, this ain't even my message. I got a message to preach. Why am I doing this? We do the same thing them Pharisees did in, in, in the New Testament. You remember there was a day when Christ was standing there and He looked down and He saw a publican. Now, a publican was a wicked man. A publican was a common individual. He looked down and he, he saw a publican who cried out and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Then he looked over beside him and he saw a Pharisee standing there. And that Pharisee prayed. And here's how he prayed. He said, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not as this publican. The Lord Jesus turned and looked at the crowd. And he said, who do you think went down to his house justified today? The Pharisee who righteousness is dictated always by comparison. Or the publican that has a clear view of the holiness of God and sees himself as a wretched sinner. The answer was the publican went down justified because he caught a glimpse of God's glory and holiness. The Pharisee went down uh, condemned in his self-righteousness because he only compared himself to somebody else. Now, you know what us Gentiles say? Well, I'm better than most people. I'm better than most people. Now, what are we saying? We're saying, by the law of conscience, Lord, I thank Thee that I am not as this publican. That, you know what that is? That's self-righteousness. Just as sure as a Pharisee measuring the hem of their garment, uh, boasting of the phylacteries on their head, the portions of Scripture on their hand, boasting of great titles and men's esteem and men's respect, when a man says, hey, I'm pretty good, I'm alright, I'm a pretty moral person, I don't need God to be good, what he's saying is, I thank thee that I'm better than this publican, and at least I ain't like that person. Hey, it's self-righteousness just the very same. You know, this world lives by the governance of the flesh. What Do what feels good, make excuses later, and you'll be all right. Well, what does the flesh get us in life? Can I remind you that God created mankind in innocence? He wasn't, I'm careful, I don't want to use the word perfection. I don't believe that Adam necessarily lived in, in, in perfection, but he lived in innocence. He didn't know what was sin and was not sin. But when Adam sinned, listen to what the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, wherefore, as by one man, it's talking about Adam, by one man, sin entered into the world. What did that produce? It says, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over them that had not sinned after the similitude in the same manner of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now, Paul's talking about some pretty deep theological truths there, but let me boil it down for the sake of our sermon. What he's saying is Adam ate of the fruit and Adam died. And there wasn't even a law in the world. But the law of God does not create sin. It condemns sin. Mankind, by the impulse of his flesh, wants to do that which is contrary to God. Listen, no no more, hey, you don't make your child do wrong by putting rules in your home. They're going to do wrong whether you put rules in your home or not. You're putting rules in your home to show them what is right and what is wrong. Well, in the same way, mankind in his flesh, in his fallen condition, we are bent towards backsliding. We trend towards depravity. We have a tendency towards unrighteousness. That's what the flesh does. What was this woman doing here in 1 Kings chapter 3? She was just doing what a grieving mother would do. But what did it produce? Well, I want you to notice three things. You know, when I read this passage, I'm struck by this thought. Number one, I see that the flesh slays. What does verse 16 or verse 19 say? Really, the first thing we know about this woman, besides her being a harlot and a mother, is we know that this woman's child died in the night. Now, again, I'm not trying to be cruel or unkind. I can't imagine uh, the crushing blow this would be to literally experience in life. But for the purposes of the sermon and the picture that God paints before us, what does it suggest to us? The woman who loved her child, her child did not die. But this woman who was operating under the impulse and governance of the flesh, her child died. And you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me that all that the flesh can produce in your life and mine is death. 
Just as when Adam trusted the impulse of his own wisdom, when Adam disobeyed God, it led to death spiritually and physically for him. In the same manner, the flesh today, if you live your life according to just how you feel and what you think, you disregard the truth of the Word of God. If you're a lost sinner, it's going to bring to you spiritual eternal death. But even as a child of God, it's going to bring you emotional and mental death. It's going to dry up your spiritual walk. The flesh doesn't produce anything that lives. It only produces that which dies. Every single child that's ever been born on this earth, the moment they're born, they begin to die. And in the same way, all that the flesh can produce in your life and mine, it it may seem as though it is healthy. It may seem as though it is thriving. I'm talking about spiritually. You tracking with me this morning? You know what I'm saying? I'm not talking about a physical child, but I'm saying there is a, a parallel between this. When a child is born, it begins to die. The works of the flesh in our life, it may look good for a while, it may look strong, it may look healthy, but in fact, it has begun to die the moment that we begin to operate in the flesh. We could read on and on through the Bible, but let me just read two verses for you that might illustrate this. Romans 6.16, Paul said this, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey. He's talking to save people, by the way. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now he's not talking about a saved person losing their salvation. He's talking about the life of Christ thriving through our life. He's saying when we operate under the motions of the flesh, when we just let our flesh govern us, it stifles the witness, the apparentness, the power of the life of Christ in our life so that we may, we may have a spiritual heartbeat, uh, but we sure enough ain't living the life of Christ the way that we ought to before a world around us. Let me say for the lost individual, uh, us trusting to our own self-righteousness, our own morality, our own sense of what is right, you may say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm better than the next guy. One of these days when you stand before God, the standard is not going to be better than the next guy. The standard is going to be the perfect, righteous holiness of God. Do you measure up to that or don't you? I, listen, I got. I, let me go ahead and just give you the end of the movie. You ready? You don't measure up to it. Just like I don't measure up. None of us measure up to it. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so for a man to trust to his flesh... For a lost person, it can only end in spiritual death, the death they're already experiencing. It'll never change their life. It'll never save them. It'll never redeem them. And for a saved person to live according to the flesh, it's going to stifle and stymie the spiritual life that God has given in us. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7, 5. He says this, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin... Man, that's a fascinating phrase. Sin sin has a force, a motion to it, a course that it takes. It's not just random. When you get involved in sin, it's not a question of whether this is going to turn out well or not. It's not a question of whether this is a good idea. It's not something you're praying about. All right. When you sin, it sets you on a course. The motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. If you're lost here today, let me say that just living according to your own sense of righteousness, that's not going to get it done. All that will do is produce death in your life. And if you're saved here today and letting the flesh have the right of way in your life, all that's going to do is produce a death in your walk with the Lord so that it is hindered, so that it is stifled. So I see when I read this, the flesh, it slays. Let me say number two. You know, I hear people say sometimes, you know, they'll say, well, I'll try better next time. You ever heard somebody say that? We just got through coming a few months ago. It's funny how Southern people talk. You know, we'll say we'll say, a little while ago. And we might mean anything between four days and 20 years ago. Say, the other day. 
And we might mean 35 years ago, which was another day, but it's not really. I was getting ready to say the other day we passed over New Year's. We're in June, like the other day, like half a year ago. The other day, like we're as close to the next one as, as we are far from the last one. But when we when we cross over New Year's, there is always a bevy of what the world calls resolutions that take place. And people make New Year's resolutions. They'll say things like, well, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to start doing better. I'm going to start doing this and that. I've seen people even come to the house of God and God's breaking their heart and convicting them and they don't want to yield and admit themselves a sinner and so they'll do things like this. They'll tell God, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do better and I'm going to commit to be a better person. And you know what they're really saying? They're saying, I'm going to outrun the flesh. I don't need to be born again. I don't want that. I don't really want to admit I'm a sinner. I don't really want God to, to radically transform and change my life. I just want to be a little better because I know I'm not what I need to be. So here's what I'm going to try to do. I'm not going to mortify the flesh. I'm not going to crucify it on the cross of Calvary and admit that it can't save me and it can't give me peace. Instead, I'm just going to try to outrun it. You know? What's the reality? I see when I read this passage that the flesh slays. But how did this baby die? Look what the Bible says in verse 19. This woman's child died in the night. You know why? Because she overlaid it. Can I say this? The flesh not only slays, the flesh smothers. How was it that her child died? Her, under the weight, surface area, and pressure of her body, squeezed all the life out of that child, hindered it to where no breath could be drawn. You know the problem with saying, well, I'm just going to be a better person. The flesh smothers us. It's bigger than us. It's heavier than us. The problem is, you say, well, I'm going to tap into my good side. The problem is you ain't got one. I, I listen, I, I'm just giving you Bible. Listen to what Paul says, Romans seven fourteen. For we know that the law is spiritual. Problem ain't with the law. The law is spiritual, but Paul says, But I'm carnal, sold under sin, sold under sin. We ought to preach another message this morning being sold under sin. Hey, for the lost man, he ain't trying to decide whether he's good or bad. The gavel has fallen. He is a slave to sin, sold under sin. For that which I do, Paul says, I allow not. Now, I'm like that. There's, I break tons of rules I've made for myself. That which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. The things I not, I not only do the things that I told myself I wouldn't, but I don't do the things that I swore to myself I would. He goes on to say this, that I do not, but what I hate, that I, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Let me just explain that. What he's saying is, if I'm a lawbreaker, I am admitting that the law is a good thing. In other words, he's saying the fact that I... Listen, the fact that you can't keep your car under 95 miles an hour on the interstate is just proof that we need a speed limit. Right? I, the, listen, he's saying if I do that, which I would, I, I'm admitting that I don't have self-control. I can't control myself, so something must. He says, now then, it is no more I that do it, he says, but sin that dwelleth in me. What's he saying? He's saying there's a part of me wants to do right, but here's the problem. There's a bigger part of me that wants to do wrong. He's saying I'm trying to run from the flesh, but the flesh overlays me. I can't get away from it. Here's how he describes it, verse 18. He says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Preacher, I'm just going to tap into my good side. You ain't got one. Preacher, I'm just going to commit to do better. No, if you could have done that, you'd been doing better in the first place. The problem is not that you need self-reformation. The problem is you need 
a spiritual revolution of your life, a new birth, a regeneration of who you are. He says, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, he says, but sin that dwelleth in me. He says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil, evil is present with me. Paul says, I, I want to do right. I know what is right, but I just can't seem to help myself doing wrong. The flesh, the problem, you say, well, I'm just going to outrun it, preacher. No, you won't outrun it. It's going to overlay you. You cannot get away from you. All of mankind, listen, for 6,000 years, mankind has been promising he's going to do better. And has the world gotten better? We have had every single conceivable psychological experiment on self-reformation that is possible for a species to have. And they have all failed. Mankind is impotent to transform his own righteousness. We see it over and over. We've, done, we've tried to do it through liberty. We've tried to do it through law. We've tried to do it through freedom. We've tried to do it through totalitarianism. And it is always the same result. Only Christ can change who and what a man is. The flesh cannot be renovated. It must be mortified. So I see that the flesh smothers. But then, you know, it goes even a step further than this. I think talking about the story, this woman had not really done anything wrong at this point, no woman wants to accidentally, uh, you know, cause the death of her child, but she hadn't willfully done anything until we come down to verse number 20. The Bible says, when she arose at midnight, she took my son from beside me while thine handmaid slept and laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. When I arose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, it was dead. But when I considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my son which I did bear. And the other woman said, Nay, but the living is my son, and the dead is thy son. And this said, No, but the dead is thy son, and the living is my son. Thus they spake before the king. You know what I find interesting here? The flesh steal, or the flesh slays, the flesh smothers. But you know what I find when I read this? The flesh scams us into trying to believe something that is not true. You know what I find here? Number one, I notice this. It scams us by depriving us of the life that God grants. If this child is a picture of what her life produces, here is what this other woman did. She came and stole all that was beautiful in this woman's life. This woman's a harlot. She doesn't have a husband that loves her. She does not probably have a home that she values or is proud in. She's living literally in a home with another harlot. The only beauty in her life is this little boy that she has. And what does the flesh do? It comes along and tries to steal all that is beautiful, all that is divine, all that God intends for humanity to enjoy tries to deprive us of that very thing. Listen, there's no one in the world more unhappy than a Christian. I'm talking about a Christian that's saved by God's grace and dwelt by the Holy Ghost that is letting the flesh govern them. The most depressed, miserable, broken person in the world will be happier than a Christian living out of the will of God. You know why? Because they've tasted and seen that the Lord's good. And then the flesh comes along and takes all that joy, takes all that peace, takes all that confidence, all that power, and lays it in its own bosom and lays a dead life in their bosom. I find that the, I find the flesh, it scams us first by, by depriving us, by trying to steal the life that God desires for us. I'll tell you, if you're saved and living out of the will of God, don't think that what your experience of Christianity is is as good as it gets. 
we'll get out of the will of God. We'll get all uh, bitter, uh, bittered up and, and, and scarred up and angry and, and, and gnarled up in spirit. And then we'll walk around and tell people that's Christianity. And then we, listen, we wonder why our kids don't want no part in it. We wonder why our neighbor don't want no part in it. I wouldn't want no part in it if that's all it was. We come along. You know why the flesh tells us, well, this is what being a Christian is. Just being miserable, being unhappy. No, that ain't what being a Christian is. That's what the flesh does. But hey, that ain't, that ain't Christ's baby. That's the flesh's baby. The, the one that God gave you was alive and smiling and bright and beautiful. It's the flesh that laid that dead child in your arms and said, this is what life is. So I see the flesh, it, it, it scams us by depriving us of the life that God grants. That thing is amazing. Not only by depriving us of the life that God grants, but by deceiving us about the life that God grants. This is amazing to me. She takes this child, lays it in this woman's arm, takes that woman's child under herself. That woman wakes up, looks down, says, this is not my baby. It is obviously not my baby. I can tell there's something wrong in this scenario. Walks over, looks that woman in the eye and says, give me my baby back. And you can have the body of your son. And that woman has nerve enough to look her dead in the eye and say, that ain't my child. This right here is my child. That child is yours. Think of the gall it took. Think of the nerve it took. Think of the cruelty that it took. And her knowing good and well that that woman knows that is not true. But you know, the longer that that mama was separated from that child, the longer that that child grew and changed in nature, disposition, behavior... That child would grow up believing that that mother, the vile one, was its mother. And probably sooner or later, that mama, whose, whose child the mother, or whose mother the child really was, she would have probably given up and moved on. All because this woman was trying to bluff her, bully her, and deceive her into believing that she was wrong. You know what the flesh does? It convinces us. Well, I'm talking about when we're out of the, I'm talking to saved people. I, if you're lost, listen up too, but I'm talking about saved people. It, we get all out of the will of God and the flesh will convince us that this is as good as it gets. Can I tell you, listen, there's no life with more joy than a life that is lived in the will of God. There is no, there is no existence. Listen, billionaires can't buy it. Hey, I'm talking about Hollywood. I can't replicate it. I'm talking about music can't manufacture. There ain't nothing like a life lived in the will of God. I used to joke years ago, I, uh, when I grew up, I, and I listened to a lot of music that I shouldn't have, and some that I shouldn't have, but I probably still do. And uh, but I, I I I listened to a lot of music growing up, and I, I used to listen to a lot of country music, and and I used to laugh at how often country music. I'm talking about country music. I'm not talking about pop music. I'm not talking about pop music with a red solo cup. I'm talking about country music. We ain't gonna we ain't gonna get we ain't gonna have a big thing about it this morning. That's enough said. And the Holy Ghost can do with that what needs to be done but how much country music would rip off gospel music. I mean, listen, I, the, the Hank Williams on multiple... Okay, Hank Williams uh, Hank Williams took page 235 straight out of your red church and will change the words and made a million dollars off I Saw the Light. You and I both know it's He Set Me Free. Listen to it sometimes. Same song. Exact same song. Hey, listen, the Leuven brothers took, took that page 308 out of that red church hymnal, that lifeboat, uh, rewrote it about killing some woman by a river and sold it as Knoxville girl. Why was Hollywood and why was country music, why was Nashville so fixated on this? They are trying to capture something. They are trying to capture something that they couldn't manufacture. You, you, you're telling me these guys didn't grow up going to church, going to singing, going to meeting, hearing people, I'm talking about plugged in, that knew God, getting up and singing and the Holy Ghost moving on hearts. And they said, if I could bottle that, I'd make a million dollars. 
The problem is they couldn't bottle it. They couldn't manufacture it. Hey, it may sound, it may have the cords, but they ain't got God on it. And that's what makes the difference. That's what makes the difference. I'm saying this this morning. The flesh will come along. It, it covets. It covets what God does in a man's heart through salvation. The flesh wishes it could produce that kind of joy. Wishes it could produce that kind of peace. Hollywood, the media, uh, the, the culture of the world that we live in uh, tries to lie to you and tell you that you can have sin and have that peace. And tries to sell you a bill of goods. What are they doing? They covet that. Just like this woman coveted that living child. And then what it will do is it will take that real life away from you. Give you nothing but deadness and lifelessness back and tell you that's all God can give you. Listen, if you're living in the flesh, that's that may be all you know. But if you'll walk in the Spirit, you'll find God can give you a peace and a life that nothing compares to. So what did this woman do? And she's a picture of the flesh. She 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 slayed this child. She smothered her own child. And then she tried to scam this woman out of her child. Well, what did Solomon do about it? When we read this, we see the, the vileness of the lady. But what about the verdict of the law? Look at verse 23 with me. Then said the king, Solomon's been sitting, listening to this in, in stoic patience, and, and finally he speaks, and this is what he says. He says, The one saith, This is my son that liveth, and thy son is dead. And the other saith, Nay, thy son is the dead, and my son is the living. And the king said, Bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Now remember, in the days when Israel had a king over it, the king was the dispenser of God's judgment and of God's law. And he is literally the oracle of the wisdom of God to the nation at this moment. What could the law say about a lost man's condition? What could the law, by the way, be it the law of commandment to the Jew, but also be it the law of conscience to the Gentile? What is the extent to which the law will speak to a man's lost Condition. Well, I notice a few things here. One, I want you to notice the stance that the law maintains. Now, you and I, we've read the end of the story. We know who the heroes and villains are. But Solomon, for all of his wisdom, he had not the divine inside of God. And so he only can do what he's able to do. And here's what he says. He says, you know, basically this comes down to hearsay. This woman says one thing. This woman says another. And I have no ability determine betwixt the two. Can I say this? He took an impartial position about the matter at hand. You know the problem with the law? The law has the ability to single out and analyze a man's unrighteousness, but it does not have the ability to do something about that unrighteousness. It cannot get to the heart of why a man is what he is and why he does what he does. You know, when you read the Old Testament law, it it only had the ability to say this is right and this is wrong. You know the same thing is true about a man's conscience? A man's conscience has the ability to condemn him or condone him, but it does not have the ability to transform him. This is why psychologists and, and psychiatrists and therapists are paid more money than you or I will ever see in a lifetime to help men try to unriddle and divine what their conscience is telling them. Because at the end of the day, they may know what they believe is right, what they believe is wrong, but they cannot understand the wisdom in all of it. And so they know when they feel guilty. They know when they feel good but they don't understand what all that means to who they are and what they should be. They go and sit on a couch and listen to someone, pretend like they know and tell them all those things. But at the end of the day, only God can tell a man why he is the way he is. 
At the end of the day, only God gives an answer on our brokenness, the root of our depravity. Only God speaks to it. The conscience can say you're guilty, but only God can say, and this is why, and this is what can be done about it. The law takes an impartial stance. It does not speak to the intentions and it does not say more than it has the ability to say. Number two, I want you to notice the sword that it wields. What does it then do in response? The Bible says in verse 24, the king said, bring me a sword and they brought a sword before the king. Now Romans chapter 2 tells us that God is no respect of respect of persons, no respect of persons with God. As many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. God doesn't, uh, through the law, the law does not presume to dictate what a man thinks or what a man feels. It just shows him what is right and what is wrong. So how then does God use His Word to parse out and to determine a man's motives? Well, here's what He does. He wields a sword with it. What is that sword a picture of? It is the enforcement, the application of the law. You know, right, righteousness, right and wrong, has always existed in the heart and mind of God. It, God did not begin to sort of lay out and unreal. You with me this morning? Feel like I lost you somewhere about 20 feet back. God has always, right and wrong are immutable things. God did not create the world and say, all right, I need to sit down and write a rule book. What was right was always right. What was wrong was always wrong. So, but what did God do? He said, but now mankind does not instinctively know what is right and wrong, so he must be told what is right and wrong. How can I apply my judgment? He does so, just like Solomon did with a sword. But it's not a physical sword. Rather, the Bible tells us that it is a spiritual sword. No, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that the Word of God is is uh, is quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides asunder the soul and the spirit, the thoughts and intents of the heart. The sword is what ferrets out what a man really believes and what he thinks and his condition. So Solomon, he says, well, I, I don't really know what has happened here. I cannot dictate, but here's what I'll do. I'll apply the sword to it, and the sword will expose what is right and what is wrong. How does God expose to mankind what is right and wrong with His sword, with the truth of the Word of God? This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 7. Listen to what he says down in verse 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. Now, he wasn't really alive. He just thought he was alive. He didn't realize how dead he was. But he says, I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. You say, preacher... What is the sword God wields? It's His Word. It's His truth that He communicates to us. He communicates it to the Jew by the commandment. He communicated it to the Gentile by conscience. He communicates it to us today by His inspired, preserved Word. But He communicates to us what is right and wrong. That's the, that's the executive instrument of righteousness and of judgment. But now I want you to notice this. We see the stance that the law maintains, the sword that it wields. But what's the sentence that it delivers? Verse 25, the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Now again, we've read the end of the story. We know what takes place. But from where Solomon is standing, here is what he says. He cannot merely ignore the problem. You know why? 
because one of these women has been defrauded of her child. He does not know which one, but the only way to make it fair, listen now, is for both of them to be defrauded of their children. What he's saying here is not we're really going to divide this child in two and give you part and you the other and you'll both be satisfied with that. What he's saying is, I don't know who's lying, but one of you is. And the only thing to do is to punish the one uh, that is lying and even things out in some way, shape, manner, and form. You know, all that the law can do is dispense punishment and to try to impart fairness. You've probably heard people say this. I have heard it in my life. Boy, life just is not fair. I've even heard people say this, you know, God's not fair sometimes. And I've always chuckled when I've heard that because the reality is, you know, that's true. Life is not fair. But let me say this, God is not fair. And you better thank the Lord that He's not fair. For if God was fair, He would have sent us all to a devil's hell. He would have condemned every single one of us. That's the reason that the conscience has no ability to regenerate a man. It's not within its ability to do so. It can slay a man, but it cannot save a man. In the Old Testament law, it could not transform somebody, but it could condemn them and and display, illuminate their unrighteousness. So you know what the sentence was for every single person? If the righteousness of God is the standard, then the sentence upon every person is death and damnation. This is what Paul teaches in the book of Romans, chapter number 3. He says this in verse 19. Now we know that whatsoever, uh, what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. And this is why, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall there no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It doesn't say by the law is the removal of sin. It says by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law is not given to take away sin. The law is given to expose the sin. Uh, the law is not given to make a man righteous. It is given to show a man that he is unrighteous. The purpose of it was not to say, here's the rules, now live up to them. The purpose was to say, here are the rules, and you can never live up to them. So you're a lawless individual. He goes on to say this down in verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What does the law say? The law does not say give this child, give another child, have another child. All the law can say is put the child to death. And in our own self-righteousness, all it can produce is death. Well, now what happens as a result? Let me mention this and I'll be done this morning. When I read this passage, I see the vileness of the lady and she reminds me of the flesh. I see the verdict of the law and that reminds me of what the Old Testament law of commandment for the Jew and the law, the generic law of, of conscience for the Gentile. All it can do is, is condemn. All it can do is make guilty. Who's the real hero of the story? Now, I know much of the purpose of this is to show the wisdom of God in Solomon. I'm not trying to take anything away from that. But when I read it, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't really see Solomon as the hero. I understand that in retrospect, what he was doing was was disclosing who really, he's divining, determining who really was the mother. But if Solomon had been taken at his word, all that would have happened is you would have had two dead children instead of one. You would have had two grieving mothers instead of one. Who really is the hero of the story? Well, I'll tell you who I think it was. I think it's the mother that spake up. The Bible says in verse 26, Then spake the woman whose the living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son. And she said, O oh my Lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. But the other said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. Did you notice what it says? Her bowels yearned upon her son. 
Now I'm going to break it down really easy. I, I don't want, I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm saying here. A lost man in his natural condition can only experience and produce death. The law, which is an exposer of man's unrighteousness, is not a vehicle for man to become righteous. And that's true of the law of commandment, and it's true of the law of conscience. It means you just live and doing what you think is right, being how you think is right, that ain't going to make you right with God. It has only the ability to produce death in you. But can I tell you what? Hey, let me just, can I read a passage? We read it a little while ago, but can I read it to you? Romans chapter 8. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. Here's what happened. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, the law, be it of of commandment or conscience, it cannot save you. But here's what God did. He did through His love for you on Calvary what the law could not do for you. Whenever mankind was condemned, unrighteous, destined to hell, destined to damnation, God spoke in love and said, I'll send my son to pay the price for their sins. You know what I see when I read this? I see, number one, I see love seeking for life. This woman, the Bible says, her bowels yearned upon her son. She loved him too much to let him die. Can I say this? God loved us too much, loved humanity too much to just leave him alone in their rotten, wicked, lost condition. You say, preacher, why did God do what He did? He didn't do it because He had to. God did not have to send Christ to Calvary. He didn't become God by doing that. He didn't verify His deity by doing that. Why did God do that? He didn't do it because He had to. He didn't do it because it was easy. He didn't do it because it was pleasant. You think it was pleasant watching His Son being beaten and spit upon and crucified? He did it for one reason. The Bible tells us, you can quote it with me, for God so loved. He didn't just love, man, He so loved. I mean, He didn't just love. I mean, He so loved. How much did He love? He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You think God sitting up in heaven mad at you? God loved you so much He bankrupted heaven's glory so that you could know Him in the free pardon of sin. You think God's sitting up there uh, counting beans uh, of your unrighteousness, keeping a tally of it? Hey, God's up there leaning over the banister of heaven saying, I just wish that they'd receive my Son. I wish they'd take my hand. I wish they'd believe my grace. I wish they'd call on my name. I love them so much. I wish they'd receive what I've done for them. Uh, Listen, if you die and go to hell, you'll have to step over the grace of God to do it. You'll have to kick aside the precious blood of the Son of God. You'll have to ignore all of the glories of heaven, all of the witness of divine revelation. You'll have to jump over every roadblock that the grace of God has put in your life, including this preacher this morning, including those people praying for you in your life this morning, including the sweet Holy Ghost that's convicting you this morning. You're going to have to jump over all of that and blow past all of that and run past all of that. Why is that, preacher? Because God is yearning for you to know Him. He loves you. He ain't looking for a way out. He's looking for you a way in. He ain't looking to throw you to the side, man. He's looking to scoop you up. He ain't looking to get rid of you. He's looking to claim you. I see that uh, love is seeking for life. It reminds me of what the Lord Jesus said in John 10. He said, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. But here's what he said. I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He valued, you know what this woman did? She valued the life of her child above the love or the leisure that she herself enjoyed. The one woman said, if I can't have a child, ain't nobody should have a child. This woman said, I want him to live even if I cannot have him. I value his life 
about, you know why that one woman said, if, if I can't have a child, I don't want nobody to have a child? She was valuing her life above that other child's life. I don't care if this child dies because I myself have felt pain and sorrow and, and, and heartache and mourning. But you know, this one woman, she said, even if it costs me everything, that child, its life is worth that everything. She's seeking, she's yearning for life. Then number two, I want you to notice this. We see love not only seeking life, we see love sacrificing for life. She said, oh my Lord, give her the living child and in no wise slay it. But the other said, let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. I'm just going to say it real simple. She said, I'll give my son if it'll give life to that child. Can I say this? Hey, listen, God gave his son so that you and I could have life in him. What's the measure of love? The measure of love is, is, is not in the statements we make. The Bible says we're to love not in word only, but in deed and in truth. Love is not measured by what we say. Love is measured by how we sacrifice. As you get older, you begin to look back at all the sacrifices your parents made so that you could have the life that you have. Why can't we look towards heaven and, and gauge and, and determine the love that God has for us by the great, grand, glorious sacrifice that He gave on Calvary? How do we know that this woman loved her child because she was willing to give it up if that's what it took for this child to live? But can I say, let me go a step further than that. She was willing to give up her own child so that her own child could live. God was willing to give up His child so that your child could live. So that you could live. So that your brother and sister and family and friends and loved ones and even total strangers that you'll never meet and total strangers. Hey, God loved them so much He was willing to give them up even though some of them were going to turn on Him. Some of them were going to reject Him. Hey, listen, I don't believe this mess that God, Jesus just died for those that He knew would accept Him. I don't buy that. I don't see how you reconcile that with Hebrews where it says He tasted death for every man. For every man. For every man. I mean, I don't even, I don't even know what kind of psychological and emotional hula hoops you'd have to go through to make that just mean some men when it says for every man. That means he died for people that he knew would spit upon him and reject him. He died for people lost and undone that hate God to this day. But he said, I'll give my son so that if they want to, they can live. We see love sacrificing for life. And then finally, and I'm done this morning, we see love securing life. Then the king answered and said, Give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. She is the mother thereof. Let me just say it real simple. Love got the job done. It got the job done. Now stop and think about this. It exposed the truth. It maintained the righteousness of judgment. And it secured the life of the child. It did something that the law had no ability to do. The law could do one thing. It could secure judgment. That's it. The, the, the lady could do another thing. The lady could have secured the life of the child, but at the expense of judgment and righteousness. She could walk away and said, this is my child, and kept it, and it not having been her child. And judgment would have been disregarded, and judgment would have been corrupted. But this mother's love was the only thing that could do all three things at one time. It could expose what is right and what is true. Not lie, not obfuscate, not, not, not pretend, not, not play, live in a dream world or a fantasy. You see, your conscience can only soothe you and you can only soothe it by you both lying to each other. Your conscience lies to you and tells you you're good and you lie to your conscience and, and tell your conscience that you're good and thereby become a Pharisee of conscience of your own self-righteousness. It cannot really be honest with you about your brokenness. 
Because if it's honest about your brokenness, all it can do is condemn you. That's how judgment is maintained. So it could be honest with you and it could condemn you. But you know, that don't help you because all that does is slay you. But you see, the love of God through Christ on Calvary, it did a third thing. It not only exposed the truth, it's honest with you about your brokenness and your sin. It not only maintains judgment by seeing that sin is not disregarded, dismissed, or ignored, or explained away, but it also secures salvation and life for you, for it pardons you and gives you new life in Christ Jesus. Listen to what the New Testament says about it in the book of Romans, chapter number 3. It says, about a believer being justified freely by His grace, by Jesus' grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. That means He's the payment. He's the sacrifice. Why did He do that? To declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness. This is why He did it. That He, that God, might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You know what Calvary did that conscience can't? You know what Calvary did that pure commandment can't? You know what Calvary did that pure judgment can't? It it, it maintained the ability to be honest with the sinner about his sin, to satisfy the holiness of God, not, not disregard it, but to pay the price, to be the propitiation, the payment for man's sin. But then be able to look at the sinner and say, be free, be whole, be pardoned, and go and do righteousness. In other words, love did what the law could not do. And I would say to you this morning, if you're here lost and undone, your self-righteousness, your conscience, whatever it is that you're leaning upon, your, your baptism, your, your, your commitment to do right, your church member, whatever it is, that's always going to fail you. It produces nothing but death. But the finished work of Christ on Calvary can do for you what none of those things can do and what you cannot do for yourself. If you're here and you're saved by the grace of God this morning, can I likewise say the flesh will give you no peace, no joy, no happiness. Don't If you're a Christian out of the will of God, don't think your experience of life is what God intended for a Christian. It's not. The grief that you feel, the guilt that you feel, the burden that you feel, the misery that you feel, that's not what God intended for you. And it is only the flesh that has taken the precious life that God has given you out of your arms and put that deadness and that lifelessness in your arms and then looked you dead in the eye and said, that's your child. No, no, no. That's not the one God gave me. That's what that mama said. She looked, she said, nah, that ain't the one that God gave me. Hey, child of God, the flesh gives you that wicked, rotten, miserable life and says, this is your child. You say, what do I do? You look at it and say, uh-uh, that ain't what God gave me. God gave me better than that. And you say, I'm not going to live for less than what Christ died for. I'm going to live the life that He has for me. Let's bow together this morning. I wonder what God spoke to you about. I don't personally in my flesh wonder, but I want you to consider what God may have spoken to you about this morning. God might have stirred your heart because you're living a life below what Christ paid for on Calvary. A lesser life than the blood of Christ secured. Hey, none of us perfect. I know that. You know that. Hey, if we're not living the life that God designed and desired for us, why are we doing anything at all? I believe we ought to commit and resolve in our hearts that we're going to live the life that God has for us. And you may be here lost today. Can I just tell you there's more than what the flesh has given you. There's more than what your self-righteousness and conscience has given you. There's freedom, there's peace, there's forgiveness, and there's new life in Christ Jesus. If you'll just come to Him and let love do for you, the love of God do for you, 
what nothing else can. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.